It's time for the chip race. Hello and welcome to the chip race, now staked by Unibet Poker. I'm your host, David Lappin, alongside Darrow Kearney. And this week we come to you from the beautiful city of Copenhagen, where we are playing the second Unibet Open of 2017. On tonight's Jam Pack show, we will speak to the WSOP star and all-round media legend Kevin Mathers. We chat to rising Twitch star, Irish Open final tableist and utterly mediocre poker podcast creator Fintan Hand. Ian Simpson will bring us the top stories, and in Strategy Corner, Darren and I will be talking blockers. But first... Nash Equilibrium. The 23rd of May this year marks the two-year anniversary of the death of John Forbes Nash, the American mathematician whose life and struggles became the subject of the well-known 2001 Oscar-winning film A Beautiful Mind. During his career, Nash made fundamental contributions to game theory, and in turn some of these concepts have been appropriated by poker players. Nash equilibrium in poker generally refers to short stack, quote unquote, solvable situations. I have with me, as usual, Darrow Kearney, who I think it's fair to say is a bit of a Nash disciple. Dara, how did you first come across Nash equilibrium's application in poker? Yeah, I kind of came at it from a sort of a, initially a very layman's perspective. I was playing sit and goes at the time and the general advice that was given to sit and go players was when you get down to 10 big blinds uh, just shove any two cards from any seat and i quickly kind of just intuitively understood that that wasn't correct and i had a kind of a eureka moment where i realized if i if i if i know the types of hands that are going to call me i can work out how often somebody has that hand and how often i'm going to 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 suck out when they do have that hand so i analyzed different spots like you know from the small blind when you have 10 big blinds what are the hands that will call me um, and therefore, what are the hands that I can shove profitably? Over time, people's calling ranges changed. Like initially, people used to call far too tight, and then people, you know, when when you showed up with with ace rag or or king four suited, um, people would make a note that you were shoving wide in the, in that seat, and they would uh, they they'd adjust their calling range accordingly. So because uh, calling ranges were changing, uh, I had to then go back and recalculate um, for all of my uh, shoving ranges, and I did this a few times, and then then I realized kind of intuitively that there the, the must there must be a sort of an equilibrium solution where I'm shoving these hands and I'm getting called by these hands and we're both kind of sort of playing perfectly if I if I shove wider um I'm I, I'm losing too much when I'm called um but if I shove tighter I'm not stealing the blinds enough so I went away and did some reading and I came across Nash and the whole idea of game theory and how you can use game theory to solve these situations and in layman's terms game theory is the is the maths behind um, situations where players can make strategic decisions, uh, w- w- which poker is obviously such a game. But the thing about poker is, in in general, is that poker is far too complicated to be solved um, in every situation. But you can solve it in this specific situation. So the idea of the Nash equilibrium is that when I am shoving a certain percentage of hands, I'm getting called by a percentage, then I, I, I recalibrate my range and eventually we, we kind of reach this equilibrium point where I can't shove more or less hands and he can't call on more or less hands without losing money. Okay, well that all, that's all very well and good, but at the same time there must be players out there who don't know their ranges, so surely shoving wider into the person who who only calls with a tighter range is better. That's true. That's that, that's undeniably true. If you if, if you can be 100% certain that, a, that, that somebody is going to call too tight, then you can make what's known as an exploitative play, which you're exp- you're exploiting that particular tendency they have. the The problem with exploitative play is exploitable pl- exploitative play by definition is also exploitable. If you get your assumption wrong and actually the guy is not as tight as you think, then you're going to lose money and he's going to gain money. So, 
Nash equilibrium sort of works well, um, first of all, against all opponents. Uh, you can't be exploited, but particularly against opponents that you don't know, you're not too sure how they play exactly. So you, you're better off sticking close to Nash. But you should certainly diverge from it if uh, you think somebody's going to make a bigger mistake in either direction. Now, I know when you kind of had that breakthrough maybe six or seven years ago, you did it quite painstakingly by inference with pencil and paper almost to try and work out, you know, what the correct ranges were. It must have absolutely broke your heart when about a year later or six months later at the back of a book, they, there they all were in, in table form. Yeah, I think I spent four months four months in 2009 working with spreadsheets, working out the, the chances of Ace-4 suited beating Ace-King and for every possible hand that, that, that I could show of every hand that could call um, how often I would actually win and how often I would lose and that was a that was a really painstaking process and as you say it did come out in the back of Kill Everyone because they basically used a, a supercomputer to, to solve the thing now the technology has, has advanced to the point where you can get Nash solutions for all sorts of um, pre-flop spots uh, just using simple pieces of software that, that run on, on normal PCs so it's even easier these days and how much uh, finally do you feel as though those computers are playing into the modern game obviously Nash Equilibrium and those tables that you describe and knowing your ranges and all those spots hugely changed the landscape poker as soon as poker pros were aware of that everyone started converging on what the National Equilibrium was is that happening for these other spots now and and are these softwares going to make it inevitable that everyone converges on the equilibrium? That's, that's a really good question. Certainly the convergence uh, in, increased exponentially as soon as people realised that this that there was a sort of theoretically correct way to play. And now, you know, you have, you, you have apps which will actually tell you what, what hands you should shove from any seat um, with a different um, stack size. So that, that information is out there. I think it was always going to come out anyway, but it, it came out quicker because of the, 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 the tools. There are other spots that you can solve too, like post-slop um, spots. Uh, so some of them are relatively simple, like how often you should call on the river when you're only beating a bluff. But some of them are more complex and you have very complex decision trees. But the software is getting more and more powerful all the time and solving more and more spots. And it used to be the case that, you know, if you had a spot that you were unclear of, um, uh, post-lop or I had a spot I would go and ask all the best players I, I knew for their opinion and they would come back and I'd sort of have a try to reach a consensus view of what people thought and you know that might or might not be wrong that's kind of gone out the window now you can actually get a piece of software and you can you can set you can set up the hand set up your assumptions and leave the computer to churn out the solution and it will give you the mathematically correct solution and how afraid should players be now that you know they're playing against an honest player like if there's bots like that out there surely someone can hook one of them up to the you know player account that they have and make that bot make all the decisions for them yeah i don't i to be honest i don't think it's 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 a, it's a massive problem as of yet just because of com sheer computing time like when if I, if i have to solve a post slop spot i have to leave the computer running for 10 minutes and i can't do anything in the meantime now from an online perspective uh, that's that's no good i'm going to have to act before that b before the 10 minutes are up i think the area where it's it, it is helping is it's it, poker is kind of moving the same way that chess moved chess used to be just about talent now chess is about talent but also how well you work with computers and, and and the best breakthroughs come from computers and then humans interpret that and, and improve their own play uh, incorporate the lessons same is true of poker i think the, the the tools will teach you how to play are better in spots but you actually have to learn that and then use that in real time at the table <laughs> We're joined now by the number one poker twitcher in Ireland, a man who routinely gets a thousand or more viewers for every stream he puts out there. Uh, is also, I think, one of our first repeat guests to the chip race. Welcome, Finton Hand. 
Thank you very much. I was going to ask that, was I the first repeat guest? I, I didn't realise you are going to shout it out and I was ready to tr blow my own trumpet, but you've already stolen it away from me two seconds in. I think it is a good choice. Well, look, when we spoke to you last, uh, I think it was this time two years ago when we were on the air before, you were doing a bankroll challenge on Twitch. Do you want to let us know how that went? I actually completely forgot about that. Yeah, I realised that I was absolutely wasting my time playing $2 sit and goes and I, I, I packed it in and went back to playing MTTs and had some success early on. And then I actually gave up Twitch for a little bit, probably about four or five months, and then was like convinced by a few people to just give another go. And now we're just playing MTTs full time on Twitch. Yeah, I have to say, like, I know a good few of your, your close friends, and, and I think it's fair to say some of your peer group thought you were wasting your time <laughs> trying to grind up 100 quid or whatever it was. Yeah, Colleen wasn't too impressed by the, by the game selection. Um, poker on Twitch uh, is, is a move to approach poker like an eSport or, or at least the, the poker sites are kind of viewing it as that, that, that's a way to sell it. Is that how you define the game? I'm not trying to really make it like an eSport, but I feel they are trying to make it... A, I'm not sure. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to make it, but I feel like the websites in the next few years are going to come out with new formats of the game that will make it feel more like an eSport that will have like elements outside of poker involved. I don't at the moment I don't consider it a sport really I just still think it's just a card game sure and and as a card game that you've decided to to play in front of an audience was there an initial sort of concern I know uh you you gave me some sage advice recently I've only just started twitching that uh, not to give too much away that there, there can be a tendency on twitch that you sort of reveal all your secrets uh have you always kind of had a tension there where you wanted to kind of give enough that the audience would grow but not too much that you were sort of revealing your hand to everyone else yeah i feel like you need to be somewhat honest like you can't sit there and like give false opinions about hands but i i don't think like i'm one of the best players on twitch like nowhere near it but if someone was like much like not like, even one of the best I ones in this conversation i would have thought that's a yeah i mean i'm definitely second i'm definitely second with you coming in a fine last place <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i i just i don't i you were do, i seen you're doing a hand history with dara the other day and i would draw the line of not wanting to do hand histories I, I feel there's like an audience for it but i feel like it's a very small percentage of the audience will really enjoy the technical stuff whereas most people just want to see having a bit of banter pass an opinion on the hand and you know not go into too detail but there is like the purist that would love if you just sat there analyzing breaking down every single hand which is I, I only caught a few minutes of the hand history review, but I assume that you were like both being like fully open and honest and, you know, given your full thought process on everything. And it's just not something I've wanted to do. Like, it's not because I think me giving out information to people is like golden information that they wouldn't get elsewhere. It's just that I feel like I give out enough without like, you know, going all technical, like to a small amount of the audience. I want to like appeal to the broader audience if possible, rather than just concentrating on a few select people. Yeah, and that's obviously a good way of building your audience up. Is that something you, you kind of learned as you went along, the kind of the tricks of not finding like a lowest common denominator, I don't want to put it that way, but finding stuff that was just generally popular or, gen or quite populist, I guess. Well, I feel, I feel on Twitch, like the level of skill of the player doesn't really matter all that much. They're much more interested in the personality um, because if you sit there, it doesn't matter if... if Fader, I'm not saying Fader Halls is boring or anything like that, but if Fader Halls or Isildur or any of the huge names went on Twitch, they will automatically get an audience because they're like at the pinnacle of the game or war at the pinnacle of the game at some point. But if someone else that comes on who's not really that well known, but he could be like top 100 MTT regs in the world, but if he's boring, he's not interactive with the chat, he sits there like a robot all day, he's just not going to get a viewing. 
Yeah, I've watched you quite a bit right, in, right from the start, and it is noticeable that you've kind of you've kind of grown into it over time, and and you're you're far more animated now, and and also more interactive with the audience. I mean, do you find it kind of like difficult in a sense to you know hype up that aspect of yourself while also playing, or is it just something that you kind of develop naturally? It it can be tough if you bust all of your decent tournaments and you're at big blind forty in four tables. And a lot of the, so Twitch audiences will flock to deep runs regardless really of who's streaming. If you're streaming the Sunday Million and you've never streamed before and you're on the final table, there's going to be like hundreds if not thousands of people in there to rail you. So when you bust your deep runs, people just leave like instantly. So if the chat slows down a bunch and you've got nothing going on on the poker, it can be hard to remain upbeat and like positive and like interactive with the chat because you know, if you bust all your deep runs, I'm sure when either of you are not streaming and you bust your deep runs, you're like, you're a little bit like crestfall and you're just like, oh, you just got to get back on the grind and not being able to talk to anyone, just like blasting the music while it's at them early levels is nice, but you just can't do that on Twitch. If you sit there in silence for like even 30 seconds, like it comes across terrible on the, on the broadcast. It, it's easy, it's, it is easier said than done though. I've been known to punt off tournaments from time to time and when there's like, hundreds if not like over a thousand people watching or whatever and if i i, I do f sometimes i actually feel bad for the stream because i'm on a four minute delay so like i'll punt off my tournament you know 20 left and like a decent like first prize and i just have to wait four minutes like everyone's like still like encouraging you in the chat and then four minutes later they see that you've just blown their hopes and dreams that they were living vicariously through you and now you're, they're just so disappointed in you and they're just like and the worst thing is not when someone says that was the worst it's just when they say why finton <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, I didn't mean to, I'm so sorry, but you know, you can't be too apologetic because- you know, You've ruined my night, Fintan. I was going to stay in with you all night and now, um, now what am I going to do? Talk to my girlfriend? This is a disaster. Uh, Lappin, you don't be firing shade at them Twitch chat. They're the people that you're trying to appeal to and love. <laughs> no, I've been- yeah. uh, you, 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 me you mentioned your lovely girlfriend, H Hannah there. You, you've been fairly shameless about, uh, about uh, using her to, <laughs> to boost your viewers. I actually did not mention her. Lappin brought a girlfriend into it. But I see the way you're trying to like make me look. It's fine. Throw me under the bus. I've seen Hannah on your stream and, and your numbers your numbers definitely do do go up and the Twitch chat perks up when she's on. Like, How does she feel about her boyfriend shamelessly exploiting her in this way? She knows I'm punching and she likes to point it out to everyone. She comes on. She lets them know just for 20 minutes or 30 minutes. She's like, look how lucky he is. Well, Fintan, you mentioned there about, you know, occasionally feeling as though you had to just kind of punt off the stack because it just wasn't kind of going well towards the end of the session. Uh, this sort of neatly segues into the your recent uh, Irish Open final table. Is that is that what happened at the end? Did you just feel as though I've had enough? I decided, you know what, Chris Dowling is an absolute gentleman. He deserves this trophy more than me. Give him all my chips. Get out of here. Sulk. Now, I, the one, I obviously, it was an ITM disaster. And in game, after talking to Chris, I felt that he was going to be shoving way too wide. And I seen him, like, when I watched the video back on the way home in the car, like, he had just shoved 10 6 for, like, nine big blinds in the cutoff, I think, two hands previous. Or not two hands previous, but the previous orbit. And I feel like my read was right, but... It still doesn't mean that it was a call. And the, the one thing, I'm not like, I had so much fun at the Irish Open final table, just the Irish Open festival in general. Like, it was the most enjoyable live storm that I played by a long way. And not just because I went deep. Like, I wrote a blog about it. And the second I walked into the, the whole area, I was like, I felt like a kid on Christmas. It was like everyone was having fun. The Norwegians were there. There was the shuffleboard was going, pints were flowing. It was like two o'clock. But the one regret I have is that I didn't ask the dealer how many chips it was. And I, I thought it was 2.1 million. 
And, like, it was probably still a fold when I was 3 of 7 with 2.1 million. But because Chris was under the gun, I just felt he was going to take that spot way too wide. But when it was when... Because I watched it back and Chris very clearly says 2.3. But I, I don't know. I thought I heard 2.1. And then the dealer said it was 2.4 when he counted it out. And I know it's only, like, 1.5 big blinds. But it does make a huge difference. And I would have folded. No, and of, oh, yeah. and of course, Fintan, I, I obviously jest, uh, incredible run and congratulations on the very tasty score. I know it's a, a bit of a kick in the balls to, to, to play a handout like that where you're, it's still kind of maybe lingering in your mind afterwards. But overall, oh, inc- incredible effort and, and well done for somebody who doesn't play live so often. You know, you took yeah, to it like a fish to water. Yeah, my only live tournament this year. And I probably won't play another one. So I'll be back next year to try and go to Fontaine again. Also, I, I have to say, I absolutely love the suit. <laughs> it takes a very brave man to wear that suit. Because, um, as, like, as I think I said on commentary, like, after you bust, you can't exactly make a discreet exit uh, when you're wearing that suit. But uh, it, it actually kind of annoys me that, you know, so many people just show up like they're going to a gym workout or something. Yeah, I'm, I honestly would have hung around afterwards. Like, I, I went home and I watched it. But when I made the mistake and I was wearing that suit, I wasn't going to be able to hide from the fact that I was on the final table. Everyone was going to recognize the suit. And I just knew that people were going to keep coming up to me and be like, oh, how did you bust? And if I had like lost aces to kings, I wouldn't have cared. I would have been like, oh, God, I'm good. But because like, I knew I'd messed up, I just I hadn't got the heart to hang around. And I felt a bit silly then when I got home because if I had just given it like 20 minutes, you know, walked around, then I would have got on the pints and I would have enjoyed it. Like I would have enjoyed Chris going deep and I would have had a few pints when Griffin won. But in the heat of the moment, I was just like, I, I can't stay here in this suit after messing up. But yeah, the guy, the guy when I done the walk in, I don't, I don't know if you see, I done the Billy strut that McGregor does. The cameraman was like, I was like, well, I do the Billy strut just for the like laugh. I had no intention of doing it, and he was like, there's no way you'll do it. And I was like, look at my suit, mate. Of course I will do it. Got some, got some grief for my uh, technique though. Apparently, it wasn't up to scratch. No, no, a lot, a lot of love for the Billy Walk and the green suit, to be honest, Fintan. Uh, quality uh, bit of uh, showmanship, I think, on the day. Um, showmanship is obviously uh, something you're pretty used to, I guess, from Twitch. And you've managed to sort of uh, bring that into a new sphere recently. I think around the time we launched this show, or relaunched this show, I should say, you launched a podcast of your own. Uh, was that yeah. with direct, direct intention to cutting our viewership in half? Or what, what were you at there? Oh no, we're we're not going for half. We're going for every single last one. I'm only on here to get everyone to come over to Off the Rails with Fintan and Spraggy, youtube.com forward slash Fintan and Spraggy. Yeah, no. Um, we, myself and young Benjamin Sprague, who was a fellow fellow Twitcher from the UK, decided that we usually would, we finish at the same time. He's also on the like, late evening tonight schedule. And we used to just get on call, play a game called H1Z1, and we would just talk utter nonsense and we were like, man, we were being so unproductive. So we decided that other nonsense, maybe some people would like to listen to it. And our intention at the start was a Twitch, poker and football po- podcast. But without guests, it's very hard to find news every single week that, you know, is interesting in the poker world, in the Twitch world. And football is, you know, not everyone wants to listen to that. And I guess repetitive, just been like, oh, this team won, this team lost. So it's kind of just turned into a free for all podcast with poker and sports but you know like last week we were talking about ice cream vans the week before we were talking about like li- possibly living on mars it's just it's a bit of everything just and two lads two lads having a chat and kind of spouting other nonsense but 
hopefully it like leads to something who knows it might no i can i can sympathize with how difficult it can be to uh to 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 kind of generate material sometimes you end up really really scraping the bottom of the barrel and um going for repeat oh, guests well listen Fintan, thank you so much um uh, we really appreciate it. It isn't by any uh, coincidence or fluke that you're our, our return guest. Uh, you're a fantastic guest and we're delighted to have you on. And maybe indeed to continue the theme, we'll get you on for season three as well. Or or failing that, maybe get your uh, your better half. We'll get Spragsy on. Well, you should probably be aiming a little bit higher. A hat-trick of Finton sounds absolutely fantastic to me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, lads. No worries. Now it's time for Ian Simpson with the news. Hello everyone, this week I'm bringing you the news from Copenhagen, where this weekend we'll be playing the UniBet Open. Uh, after months of online satellites, there are around 200 online qualifiers, and uh, we're expecting Friday Day 1B to possibly be a sellout. So if you're going to play this event, either get here early on Friday or come down for Thursday for Day 1A. Uh, top stories this week, we've got a look at uh, the online felt, where Charlie Carroll um, won the 10k scoop main. It bagged him one, over $1.2 million. Uh, he defeated Harrison Gimbel heads up. Um, and he saw a star-studded final table that included Conor Drinian, Emma Patel and Samuel Boosden. Uh, some massive congratulations to Charlie for that result. Uh, another huge result this, uh, this past week was uh, Doug Polk. Doug Polk managed to win the Powerfest main for $270,000. It's also the new biggest ever result that's ever been live-streamed on Twitch. So, again, congratulations to him. Last but not least, our very own Dara Carney. He accidentally uh, won an $11 satellite. Now, that isn't the big news, because he turned this $11 satellite uh, qualifier into $39,000 for coming fourth in scoop number 41. Congratulations to him. The Live Arena. Um, at the recent 88 Festival in Barcelona, the main event was won by Luigi Shahade uh, for €110,000. Uh, main event travels, Fraser McIntyre over on Gentleman took second um, in the Barcelona High Roller. Um, Carolyn Pop won that one. Fraser bagged himself €28,000 for that. Congratulations. Two weeks ago, the PokerStars Mega Stack Leinster was held in Dublin and won by Emmett Durrigan for €8,000. Mark Clifford got second, and popular pro Derek Murray got third. Yeah, well, what an amazing uh, weekend. I guess some people call it the biggest weekend of the year online. There's certainly a few biggest weekends of the year online, uh, certainly biggest Sundays out there. But it's, This it's, really felt like the biggest ever. <laughs> yeah, it really was huge. People were routinely doing 10 and 20k in buy-ins, uh, and that's just like the mid-stakes grinders. Yeah, uh, Charlie's result unstoppable that man he is absolutely on fire these past few years 5.5 million in live winnings so much online winnings to boot as epiphany 77 as he's better known on the online arena um including two previous seven figure scores actually charlie like no no stranger to the uh, the, the milli scores he won the monte carlo high roller back in may 2015 that was sort of his breakout result and uh, of course took second in the bahamas high roller in january of this year Interestingly, with that uh, final table, he was having connection issues. He's out in Mexico at the moment. And uh, he ended up playing the final table out uh, on a pretty dodgy, if you were watching it, there was lots of disconnects, on a pretty dodgy uh, Starbucks connection, which is absolutely insane. <laughs> Sitting there in Starbucks with his Frappuccino, winning himself a mill ball. Well, uh, holy shit. Um, you mentioned there, Ian, that Dara uh, got fourth in that scoop after misclicking into the satellite. Uh, pretty sick result, 39k, parlayed from that tenor. It's ridiculous. He also chopped a Powerfest, though, last Sunday. Oh, did he really? Yeah. 
absolutely ridiculous. That man is also on fire. He's, of course, with us here in Unibet Copenhagen this weekend, so maybe he can uh, turn all this uh, online run good into some live run good now as well. Um, but, yeah, a lot of work off the table Sarah's been doing recently. Uh, some people might have seen our recent uh, Twitch stream as well where we did a bit of a class. Not trying to take credit at all for his results, but, you know, that scoop result was directly afterwards. It was either that day or the next day, so I'm just saying... Hey, I Maybe I should have got a piece. I saw your analysis of the heads up. It can't be from what you said. <laughs> uh, well, the 8-8 eight eight, uh, final table that you mentioned there uh, in Barcelona also featured Kate Hall. Uh, she came in with the chip lead and ended up getting fourth. And then William Kasufu made a deep run in that event too. Was chip leader, I think, with a couple of tables to go, but ultimately fell in 11th place. And then finally, you mentioned that we're recording here in Unibet Open Copenhagen. Well, next week, we're going to be recording from UK Tour Glasgow. So if anyone fancies a 220 buy-in, I reckon... You know that could be that could hit the sweet spot. Uh, you 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 heard about the prop bet I lost, right? No. What's this? Well, I lost a prop bet to one of, to uh, one of my moderators on my Twitch channel. Uh oh. So I have to wear a silly costume in Glasgow for the duration of the event. Has the ca- costume been decided on? Well, we are still taking suggestions via Twitter. There's a running favourite, which is a meatloaf costume. Oh, please do the meatloaf costume. I'll <laughs> oh, just put you in a fat suit. That would be so pure. I would love to see that. Okay, everybody, if you're out there and there is a Twitch poll or a Twitter poll out there, please, just tweet please, at Unibet. Tweet at Unibet. Tweet at Unibet. Put him in a meatloaf costume. I want to see. I want to see Ian Simpson in a fat suit. <laughs> Perfect. For our strategy section this week, I wanted to talk a little bit about blockers. And I guess when we uh, construct our bluffing range, you know, we're poker players. We like to bluff from time to time. Uh, using blockers is probably the most efficient, or if you like, GTO way to construct that range. Dara, you recently were sitting at the table uh, through a fascinating hand played out between Dan Wilson and David Vamplew at the Party Poker Millions uh, about a month ago. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that hand and how it relates to this concept? Sure, yeah. So basically, the hand op- started with Dan opening uh, onto the gun. Um, and just to remove any suspense, Dan, Dan has pocket fives, red fives, five of hearts, five of diamonds. It gets around to David Van Plew in the big blind, and he decides to defend. Um, the flop comes king, jack, nine, all spades, which is obviously a terrible flop for Dan's hand. So, so Dan isn't even going to continuation bet. He's basically lost interest in the hand now. Um, he might try and get it to showdown and you know hope to win against pocket fours or whatever, but he's not going to put any money into the pot. <clears throat> so David checks, and Dan checks behind. But then the turn is the only card in the deck which could uh, actually change Dan's uh, opinion on the hand. It's the five of clubs. So now we have king of spades, jack of spades, nine of spades, five of clubs. So Dan has trips. Um, and obviously he, he needs to protect against hands that had, just have a spade or get value from, you know, two pairs or, or even even a king. So when David checks, um, Dan bets and David calls. The river then is a, is another king. So Dan now has um, a house, but it's the worst house. Uh, the final board reads king, king, jack, nine, five. So uh, he's losing to king, jack. He's losing to king, nine. He's losing to uh, pocket jacks. He's losing to pocket nines. But it's certainly a hand he'd like to value bet if checked. To. Yeah, so when 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 Van Plew checks, uh, David, uh, Dan bets obviously thinking that he still has the best hand and he can get value from maybe from flushes from from a, a bear kings a hand like king queen so dan does bet and then david moves all in and i i, I was sitting beside dan at the time and dan ought to be groaned when, when when the all-in happens because you know dan has one of the worst hands that he's betting for value on the river um and yet 
uh, and, and now he's facing an all-in decision. Yeah, and you would normally assume uh, with good players that uh, raising for value there will only ever be better bouts. So I think we can safely say that in, in that spot, David would call with flushes um, and he would probably uh, only go all in for value with a king jack, a pocket jacks, a pocket nine, something like that. Yeah, I think when, when two good players are playing against each other, they like to be what's called balanced in every spot, which means that they'll be betting for value a certain amount of time. And then they'll balance that out with a certain number of bluffs. The, the correct bluffing frequency is determined by how pot the big is when they move all in. So David Van Plew has to have bluffs in his range at this point. Um, and he then has to select which are the best hands to bluff with. And Dan did eventually call. And when I saw David Van Plew's hand, I immediately thought, yeah, that's the very best hand that you could bluff with. Um, he had basically turned jack nine into a bluff. Now, if you think about the hand from his perspective, uh, he's flop bottom two on the flop. So he's, go he's going for the check call, but Dan checks behind. Um, on the turn, he still has, he, he now has a uh, second and third pair. He checks again when Dan bets, he has a pretty easy call. And then on the river, he checks and he, and he's, probably hoping that Dan checks behind and his hand is good. But when Dan does bet, he now realizes that he, he doesn't have the best hand, but he has a really good hand to turn into a bluff. Because if you think about the value hands on this board are King Jack, King Nine, Pocket Jacks, Pocket Nines, uh, and Pocket Fives. So he's blocking most of those hands with a Jack and a Nine. Yeah, exactly. And and I guess in that spot, again, guys would look at three pair and kind of see their bottom pair having been counterfeited and, and sort of really question the value of their hand at that point. But in that spot, a creative player, an intelligent player like David Van Plew, knowing he's playing against another intelligent player, even though the reshove, I believe, wasn't for that much more, he knows he has to have at least a, a bluff in there or a couple of bluffs in there to balance out. And I guess in that spot, maybe Jack Nine is the only one he should go with or or possibly a flush blocker. Would that make sense as well? Yeah, I think I think if the board hadn't paired, the, 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 the best hand to, block, to bluff would, would be a hand with the ace of spades because you, 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 you're blocking all the nut flushes. Um, in general, any hand which which blo which blocks the nuts or a lot of strong value hands, like in this case, Jack Nine does. Um, a, a king would probably be a good hand as well. If you, if you thought your king wasn't strong enough to call, uh, you could possibly turn it into a bluff because you're blocking the all the all the boats that have kings. Yeah, look, really interesting points there. And I'm sure we could talk ad nauseum about that particular hand and other hands like it, where you would turn um, hands of that nature into bluffs. I think uh, when you're out there, guys, and, you know, in the minefield of poker tournaments and you're trying to progress through poker tournaments, you can't always make the best hand. In fact, if you're only sitting waiting for the best hand every time, you probably won't make it through tournaments very often. So you must bluff. And I guess the question here is, when do you bluff? And I suppose our advice today is use your blockers. Yep. We are joined now by, I guess, the man who could be described as the Oracle, the font of all poker knowledge, the WSOP SAR himself, Kevin Mathers. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on the Chip Race today. I am, I am honoured to be on the show with uh, two fine gentlemen as yourselves. Well, I, I, I think we owe you a debt of gratitude. It is your uh, retweets and, uh, and um, sort of soft publicity of us through Twitter and different things like that that has probably helped us get a, a broader audience away from the Irish and UK market. And we're, we're very grateful to you for that. Well, I'm, I'm certainly glad to do my part to help you guys. I mean, you know, you definitely are important vo voices in the uh, community. So I'm, you know, I'm glad that you've, you two have uh, enjoyed a great deal of success outside of the uh of your local area 
Well, you're very kind to say that. Uh, Kevin, I think it's fair to say that despite your enormous social media presence, you are a pretty shy guy when it comes down to it. In fact, for a lot of years, there were theories flying about, I know, that you maybe weren't even a real person, that you might even be a robot. Uh, Did you prefer it when you had poker anonymity or do you prefer it now? Um, It kind of depends. I mean, there was certainly a point in my poker media career as it was until 2010 where I sort of enjoyed it, but it was... I, I sort of had to get out of my shell to um, actually get some sort of, you know, if I wanted to actually get paid and, you know, do and uh, do, you know, get outside of my house, I, I sort of had to, you know, make myself um, available to the public, I guess is the, guess is the best way to put that. Yeah, I saw I saw it firsthand at the World Series a few years ago, like ju- just how big a deal you are to normal poker fans, because I was actually sitting at a table and then somebody like pointed in the distance and said, do you guys know who that is? And everybody looked and everybody kind of went no. And then he, he said like in a really hushed tone, oh, that's Kev Math. Um, and it was kind of like as if he was pointing out, you know, Phil Hammett or, 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 <laughs> or, or Ivy. Uh, like, do you find that weird? Because like... I, 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 when I when I got on the internet first, it was back in the mid '90s, and the main thing I used it for was like as a David Bowie fan club. And I, I guess I was kind of the Kev Math of David Bowie fans at the time. And <laughs> a, a couple of years in of like answering qu- every question that people asked about David Bowie, I was really shocked to find like how highly regarded I was and and how you know famous within that small niche I was. Did you have a similar thing in in poker when you started like going out and meeting people? Uh, yeah, it was definitely it was definitely very weird, like how people were thanking me for you know providing, you know information like on Twitter and two plus two, et cetera. It was that was definitely very strange to me, because it's sort of like, it seemed like anyone could sort of do that role, and it just so happened to be I was the one that was sort of taking care of it, and you know it's it's, I mean it's very it's very humbling to be honest. It's just like. You know when they, you know when they thank you for what you do, and it's just like, you know, it's, it's. I mean, I sort of do a. I guess I'm sort of like the customer service representative of poker. I guess, and it's, which is kind of weird in a sense, but, you know, it seems some people would sort of be lost without me. So I'm, I'm glad to do my part to uh, help them out. Yeah, I think it's one of those things. Like when, when people think of celebrities in poker, they, they might like focus usually on the on the really loud uh, brash voices but actually like among among ordinary poker people somebody like you actually had probably provides more value uh yeah in a sense i mean i do try my best um you know the, basically i mean it's sort of like information is key in poker and you know like when you're playing at the table you know you're trying to get as much information as you can from your players and that's sort of like what i'm sort of doing on more more widespread scale is you know about tournaments and things that are going on within the community. Um, and you've like you've been involved at so many different levels in the industry. You've written for the Pokerati blog. Uh, you wrote online tournament recaps for the Stars blog. You were the shadow editor for Poker News and you're the manager of Poker Information for Bluff. There's obviously plenty of overlap between all those jobs, but they're, they're kind of distinct as well. Which job did you enjoy the most? Uh, I think uh, overall, I think, you know, my job, when I was working at Bluff, that was definitely the, the most fun I had regarding poker. Um, you know, it was it was great to go into the office uh, here in Atlanta with with Lance Bradley, Tim Fioravanti, Paul Orstein, and it was basically like the four of us working together. You know, for you know for, to maintain the website, the you know the, the Bluff magazine when we had that, and it was just great to, for all four of us just to you know shoot the breeze about poker and all sorts of stuff. So that was definitely the most fun 
job I had among all the ones I've had. Yeah, I can imagine that being a bit of a dream job, Dara. Where I, like, I guess we probably do a version of that where we go for coffee and we, we shoot the breeze about poker, but it'd be nice to be, to, to, to be paid for that. Yeah, that, that definitely was a perk. Kevin, in uh, 2016, you won the jury prize at the American Poker Awards, but I do remember in an interview afterwards that you said you were disappointed not to win Media Person of the Year. You're probably not aware of this fact, although actually, if anyone is aware of it, it would be you. Um, But you're actually being interviewed today by the 2012 Irish Poker Awards Best Blogger and Best Social Media User. Um, My co-host Dara took that one down and uh, that year I didn't even get nominated. So uh, so I, I do feel your pain. Um, not even in either category did I get a nomination. So um, I'm not going to lie, five years later, it still hurts a bit. Have you gotten over your defeat yet? Yeah, it was great to be nominated, obviously. I was nominated uh, the first two years for Poker Media Person of the Year. And then, but it's not like, I'm not like, I don't really do writing as much as I used to. And it's more like basically, I was just basically on Twitter. And that's sort of like, I guess that's, in a sense, it's it's not like I'm in poker media, even though I'm providing information, I guess. Um, and I just felt that, you know, the jury prize was like, it's. I felt it was a consolation prize. But I mean, you know, Diane Peterson won Poker Media Person of the Year last year. He certainly deserved it. And I certainly am glad that he won. Let's get around to, I, I guess, maybe the topic that people will most associate with you these days, uh, the WSOP. Um, I believe your first WSOP experience was for the November 9 final table in 2010, uh, live tweeting all that action for Bluff when you were working for those guys. At the end of this year, it was announced, or sorry, in April of this year, it was announced that you would be back in the role, uh, what has been dubbed, I guess, WSOP SAR. Uh, can you tell us how your relationship with the World Series has grown over the years? Uh, yeah, it was definitely, yeah, you were correct. Yeah, 2010, November 9 was my first live experience in poker, and, you know, um, I wouldn't be at the WSOP the entire series, so I would basically be answering. I would see lots of questions that were asked at the WSOP, and you know they're busy with other stuff. They're not on Twitter as constantly as me, so it's sort of like you know it's sort of like. Um, and there would be times when a certain person would be on the WSOP Twitter account, and they would sort of overreact or just get angry at someone, and that would sort of create drama that was unnecessary. So last year, I, I sort of realized I was going to be at the WCP the entire summer for Pocket 5. So I, I decided um, I contacted Jack Eiffel and, you know, basically asked if, you know, if they want, if, if they would consider me to, you know, sort of run the WCP Twitter account for the summer. And, and thankfully they said yes. And so I was there, you know, and I was there the entire summer and, you know, people were happy. You know, there weren't complaints about someone going nuts on Twitter, on the WCP Twitter. So... Um, you know, I was invited back for this year and it's sort of like, it's basically, you know, I consider, like I said before, I start, I consider my role on Twitter as being like the customer service agent. Um, you know, people ask the same questions and, you know, sometimes they're really dumb and it's been answered many times before, but, you know, you still have to answer that question because, you know, someone else may not have seen that before. So of course this year, there, um, it's been announced that there is no November nine. How big a deal do you think that is? Is and like, are you sad to see the demise of the November nine? I think it, it sort. Of, I think the November nine sort of ran its course. You know, the idea at the start that this was hopefully going to get people. You know, it was supposed to draw mainstream attention. And uh, you know, I mean, the first couple of years, kind of. I mean, it kind of helps when Phil Ivy makes the table, but it didn't really draw the buzz that I think people expected uh, because you know. 
So Ivory doesn't at that time didn't want to be, you know, make the uh, talk show rounds or whatever. So, you know, he just and I think things like that sort of hurt it. Um, I'm kind of glad that I'll be able that I think we'll be able to see the the main event winner determined in July. Uh, I mean, people are like, you know, who had sort of started up the, uh, you know, November 19th industry, you know, they're, they're probably not as happy about this development, uh, or, or the various coach, you know, mental game coaches, trainers, it's all that, that, that little industry is, is gone now. And I think I'm not really upset about that. I mean, it's sort of, you sort of wonder like last year, would key win have won last year if, mm-hmm. if they had played down to it? Cause he was like, sort of, he was sort of like very much below the radar because of Will Kasuf and other things that were going on. He was sort of like, you know, he was, I think, second or third in chips, so it wasn't like we saw a whole bunch of his play. And then he, he got some help, and then he sort of went, you know, he he sort of basically ran over the table in a sense. He just like, you know, he, I mean, heads up especially, he sort of, he pretty much owned Gordon Veo heads up. And, and you know, Gordon Veo is definitely the better player, I would think. And, you know, we, you know, Key Wynn has sort of like disappeared in a sense. You know, he's Maybe he's at the back of that table or something, but um, <laughs> yeah. but you know, you it's it's sort of like it would be interesting to see how that final table would played out without the without four moms off. So, yeah, I, I, like I I feel like the amateurs probably benefited the most because they had the most gains they could make in the time before they had to pay the final table where they could go off and get coached. Uh, I think you in the case of some of the amateurs, you saw two very different players. You know, the the guy who got to the final table in July played one style, and by the time they came back, they were playing. A much different style, closer to the way that pros play. Um, like I also feel one of the interesting things this year it'll be it'll be to see how much of a role tiredness will play um, late on. Because you know, obviously, when people had a few months off to go away, they come back completely fresh. But this year, the guys will like have literally played through. I think they have a couple of days off before the final table starts. But you know, they don't really have time to recharge. So, do you think that makes it less likely that you know an amateur like Key Win could come through and win again? Uh, that's a very good question. It's it's probably not going to help. But I mean, it's going to be quite the slide to get to the final table itself, and that's sort of um, I don't know if it's going to if it's going to be more quote mainstream pros are going to make the final table this year or not. But uh, I mean, that would be good if it was because you know it would sort of help increase traffic, etc. Yeah, I think people are going to rely more now on their uh, social group, their existing social group. Like let's let's say for example, and I don't play any tournaments where there's a gap for the final table. So if I make a final table. And, and, and maybe there's a 12-hour turnaround. I've got a little bit of time. I can relax, hopefully get a decent sleep, get a decent meal, breakfast the next morning. But what I'm almost certainly going to do is get into my, you know, WhatsApp or my Messenger or whatever it is and talk to Darrow Kearney and talk to Dara Davey and talk to Nick Newport and talk to Dan Wilson and sort of use my collective brain, the hive brain of your uh, sort of the best of your pals to sort of talk about, look, here's my stack, here's my position. What are the general principles I should be thinking about? Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Like when I, when I made my final table two years ago, I mean, I was relying on David and uh, Jason Tompkins and a few other friends that I knew already to to watch the stream and and and, and feed me the key information. And also, I had a, a tells expert, uh, but these were all people that I knew already. Um, so like, I feel like while on the one hand, the guys who are going to lose out will be you know the the Federer Holtzes or Greg Mersons or whoever that people go to for three or four month coaching. But uh, listen, Kev, I, I'm very conscious of the fact that we've kept you quite a long time, and I'm really grateful for that but I did want to ask you there are four other changes that have occurred uh, rule changes or uh, uh, protocol changes with the WSOP would you mind running through those for us as well uh yeah I guess I guess the one that's sort of going to be the most interesting is that 
you know, the uh, the quote mothership was in the Amazon room, and now it's being moved to the Brazilian room. That's gonna be that's gonna be where that's gonna be where you're. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's where the setup's gonna be for uh, final tables and streaming. Um, it's gonna be that's gonna it's gonna be an interesting look. You know, that's that's the first time they've you know it's basically that's sort of a, a huge shift in um, you know we sort of you know. The sort of the dream was to get on the mothership, the you know get to the Amazon room on the final day, to the final table. Now it's sort of, it's in a new location, um, and you know some other things that you know we're, we're going to be is uh, you know the infamous poker kitchen is going to be severely downscale is uh, downsized. Uh, it's not going to be as many um, hot food stations. It's going to be more of a grab and go type of thing. Uh, I know people have their you know, maybe you dare, maybe that don't visit the, the poor kitchen as much as other people do. Um, yeah, you, it was so, pretty grim, to you, be honest. I think one of the problems in general with the the World Series and, and the Rio as a venue is there is a kind of a lack of um, decent food options around. Yeah, I, I know people have complained about the price for years and it's sort of, you know, and I sort of understand that. Um, I mean, but, you know, it is a business and, you know, they, they sort of have to recoup some of this investment. And, you know, obviously Rake is one of those things that, I know you two have certainly uh, voiced your opinion about Rake uh, online and live for many years, and and I mean I, I you know I mean it's it's very tricky, um, and you know I wish Rake was lower as well, but you know it's it's kind of tough. But you know the other things that are um, you know another another change from uh, previous is that there's going to be a new player of the year uh, system. It's not going to be based on GPI this this year. Uh, I don't know the exact criteria yet, but uh, it's um, it's being sponsored by King's Casino, definitely one of the emerging poker rooms in Europe. Uh, you know, we, you know, they're going to be housing the WC Europe this year, which is coming back after a, a couple of year absence. Um, and they're also King's is also there's also going to be a special high roller lounge for the, in the cash game area at the pavilion. Dara, do you see uh, yourself I'll... as being one of the people uh, eating the hot dogs off the stand or quaffing the Fiji artisanal water in the high roller area? I'm not sure, to be honest. <clears throat> I, I think I might stick to my plan of bringing my own food, um, <laughs> uh, that's, which has worked well for me in, in recent years. But yeah, like just to give a reaction, obviously uh, people who have never been at the, at the World Series, you know, Amazon Room and Brasilia Room, they, if, if they even know what they are, they're, they're, they're just names. But uh, there, there's basically three major rooms at the World Series. Um, there's the Pavilion, which is the biggest room, I think. And uh, that's typically where the smaller tournaments are or where people start off at day one, their day one, maybe in the big tournaments. And then the Brasilia is a much nicer room. And then the Amazon was, was kind of the room where all the final tables were. Uh, but to be honest, the Brasilia is actually a much nicer room than the Amazon. So I, I, kinda, I guess it kind of makes sense to move the mothership in there. Oh, another change that you know is Poker Central is, is taking over the rights, the uh, the streaming rights for the WSP. It used to be, you'd go to the WSP, WSP site, you can watch final tables. That's now going to be taken care of by Poker Central, um, right. and um, there's going to be an, it's going to be interesting because there are certain details that I'm aware of at this moment that you know, will probably come out before the uh, show is, uh, before the show is released. Um, that may cause some uh, questions, I guess. There's basically going to be a new Poker Central app, um, which is, you know, that's where the you'll be seeing the streams. Uh, and there's going to be less. There's probably going to be, you're going to probably see tables, uh, the pre preliminary final tables, I mean, uh, and you may be being charged to watch them. There, so you know, it used to be free. I remember back in the day, I when Bluff had. 
the coverage, you know, you paid $50. I think it was 2008. Um, That's right. Was uh, it? And I, I actually paid for that. I remember. Yeah, I paid 50 bucks for that too. I got my, I got my free subscription. Um, and they had that, in a, you know, they had the infamous uh, sequestratorium, which is basically they put it behind the curtain and sort of basically sucked the soul out of the final table experience. Um, so I'm glad that's it. Oh, did. I remember, I think, that, I think Helmut was winning his 11th bracelet and there was zero yeah. atmosphere. I think 10, maybe 10, but yeah, he did win a bracelet maybe in 10. the atmosphere and that was kind of lame. But yeah, it's sort of like, uh, there's going to be, I believe there's going to be a charge. I don't know the exact charge. There may not be, you know, there may be certain outcry about that, that, you know, they're paying, they're, they're surely paying a good amount of money for this. So they need to, you know, get that money back at some somehow. So, is it fair to say that all these changes, Kevin, are coming from a place where the WSOP are expecting a big one this year? Like it's it's obviously it grew and grew and grew, and then post Black Friday, sort of numbers dropped off. But it's been growing ever since. Are they expecting the biggest one yet? I would, I would expect that. I mean, there's definitely you know the the giant that's the lowest buy-in uh, brace event yet, at um, three. I think it's 365. You know, we're sort of, that's sort of like going to be a huge field. And, you know, basically if you slap a name on it, it sort of dra- attracts people, you know, Millionaire Maker, uh, you know, the Monster Stack, the Colossus, you know, the Marathon, something that you'd be familiar with, uh, Dara. You know? Yeah, yeah, I'm uh, the Marathon. What's the Marathon? Uh, marathon is uh, 100 and it's um, 110 minute level. It's 100 minute levels. It's sort of like the Summer Solstice last year. And it's got a bigger starting stack too, I think, does it? Uh, I think, yeah, I think it's 50, I think it's 15 K, uh, yeah. hundred minute levels. So it's a five day turn. Uh, so it's not like you, 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 you play until someone falls, like there's no breaks and there's no gaps. Uh, or just... um, no, that would be a concept that would certainly be interesting to try out at the WSP is to do something like without breaks. Um, I think that'd be a great yeah, concept. Would... I've been trying to get that concept off the ground for years. Like just literally yeah, you everybody would be starts there. and you just play through until like everybody's falling asleep and there's one person stealing the blinds every hand. Yeah, or some or somewhere you have to like run like uh, laps, and then you know, yeah. you know, you go on break, and everyone has to do a lap, and then you know, you get back, and uh, first one back at the table, you know, they they start dealing. So you know, it would sort of make things interesting to do something like that. We need to innovate. Oh, we need to keep these brainstorm sessions going. Well, Kev, to to wrap things up because I feel I feel very guilty that we we've kept you for probably the guts of an hour, and you've you've got thirty two thousand four hundred followers out there who are probably wondering has Kev dropped dead or what's wrong with him? Why hasn't he tweeted in the last little while? Um, so we better let you get back to your faithful. Um, but from Dara and I, we really, really appreciate you, you, you stopping by and giving us a fantastic interview. Uh, loads of great insights into your own life, but also uh, the WSOP coming up. So thank you so much. Well, th- thank you very much. And I, I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, my, my mom is definitely the one most concerned when I'm not tweeting after like a couple hours. So uh, I got I got I got to get back to work and make her and make her not worry about me for a moment. The music world lost yet another icon last week. Playing us out tonight is Chris Cornell and his cover version of Metallica's One to the music of U2's song of the same name.
joined by the second most famous man from Dumfries, Scottish high roller Neil Farrell, and the poker baffer herself, Kat Arnsby. Until then, from Dara, Ian and myself, good night and good luck. (laughs) 